great to be with you. I'm excited about the uh, life to the full week. We had a great day yesterday. I know it's going to be great in the week to come. But have you caught up with the other really big news going on in Claygate at the moment? No? The Essential Isha, the magazine we all get through our doors, even though we don't live in Isha, the Essential Isha has changed its name. Yeah, can we have slightly more shock than that? It's now called, it's no longer called Essential Isha. It is now called Look Local. It's not good, is it? We don't like that. Anyway, the good news is, the good news is, the format hasn't changed. And it is still jam-packed with adverts promoting that wonderful Isha Surrey lifestyle. So, what have you got in there? You've got adverts for bathrooms you couldn't imagine washing in. You've got open-plan kitchen and living spaces where you can't get away from anybody. You've got executive cars you can't fit on the road. And you've got gardens that don't grow weeds. Well, not in Isha. So, I love this magazine because it kind of holds up to me the lifestyle I really ought to have and I'm never going to be able to afford. It's kind of interesting, though. It holds up a lifestyle. I know your ideal lifestyle looks very different to that. In fact, all our ideal lifestyle look very different because we have different tastes and interests, different goals and aspirations. But what I want you to do this morning is to visualise your ideal lifestyle. It may be one that you're hoping to have somewhere in the future. It may be one you'd really love to have now. It may be one you wish you'd had, looking back. Visualise your ideal lifestyle. What does your ideal life look like? What does the house look like? What car is on the drive? What phone is in your pocket? What holiday is in your diary? What number is on your bank statement? And most importantly, what of your children's achievements are on the Christmas newsletter? (laughs) Our culture thrives on getting us to dream of an ideal lifestyle. And it thrives on the idea that the ideal lifestyle is out there to be built. If we work harder, if we earn more, and if we get more stuff. So in this neck of the woods, we're all working like crazy to get the lifestyle that we think we want. But is our ideal lifestyle, whatever it looks like, is it really what life is all about? Is it the reason we are on this earth to busy ourselves getting more stuff for the lifestyle we think we want? Well, I guess that's the question behind our Life to the Full mission this week. It started last night, continues through till next Sunday, because in it we're helping people from this community and ourselves really to engage with one very simple question. Is there more to life to the full than simply a full life? Is there more to life to the full than simply a full life? There's going to be lots of ways to explore that question this week. There's still uh, tickets available for John Archer, for David Wilkinson. Michael Green's going to be helping us think about that next Saturday and Sunday. Listen, don't miss out on that. It's a weekend not to be missed. But today I just want to, if you like, have a little bit of a first look at that question. A first look at that question through the story of one man. A man who looked like he had everything. He looked like he had the ideal life. But he came to realize 
that life was to be found somewhere very different. Now that man was a man called Nicodemus. And we heard some of his story as Marion read it from John chapter 3. We're going to look at him this morning because he's a fascinating character. There are Bibles in your seats. Perhaps just open them with me, if you wouldn't mind, to page 1065. Because this may be a very ancient story, 2,000 years old, but it's deeply modern in its application. So John chapter 3, page 1065. Because we'll see this morning that while Nicodemus came to Jesus full of confidence... He heard some messages which were actually quite challenging, but ultimately took him to a better place. And if you're here this morning because you're not quite sure what you believe, but you're aware there's something missing, I hope there's a message here that makes you want to explore more and that is actually different and relevant to you. And if you already describe yourself as a Christian here this morning, I pray that today is a great reminder and encouragement about what the good news of Jesus is all about. I've jotted down on this kind of um, mauve effect batting order uh, uh, three areas that I think we're looking at, three key messages which summarise what Jesus is saying. First of all, life is not something you just make for yourself, verses 1 to 9. Secondly, life is something that God offers, verses 10 to 16. And thirdly, life is something to be lived, through to some other passages in John. And we'll apply each of those lessons to ourselves. We'll hear a story on the way or two of kind of connecting that with our lives. Okay, the first message is this. Life is not something you make for yourself. That's the first message I think Jesus says. Let me introduce, therefore, Nicodemus to you. Okay, in verse 1, the Gospel writer John tells us some important facts about this man Nicodemus. Number one, he was a Pharisee. Now, the Pharisees were a group uh, of Jewish Uh, scholars and leaders who were concerned with the religious law of the day and people complying with it. They were something of a kind of pressure group within kind of contemporary culture of that day, arguing for a strict adherence both to the law of Moses and the various other kind of laws that had built up around that law uh, over the thousand years or so. Uh, And they were powerful people, Uh, And as Jesus found out later in his ministry, they were not to be trifled with. So he was a Pharisee. Secondly, he was a member of the Jewish ruling council, John tells us. The name of that council was the Sanhedrin. And it was something of the kind of parliament or high court of its day. uh, With a maximum membership of 70 from across the whole of Israel. It was a place where judgments were made about Jewish religious and political life. And those two facts, the fact that Nicodemus was a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin, tell us a huge amount about him. Because if he was a Pharisee, if he was a member of the Sanhedrin, Nicodemus was a very powerful man. He was liked to have been rich, a significant income, many servants. He would have been well-connected to the best families in Jerusalem. In other words, he had the sort of life that other people would have looked up to. He had money, status, respect, and power. He could have what he wanted. It's difficult to think of an equivalent today because so much of the kind of hitherto respected professions have slightly kind of taken a blow in recent years. You might want to think of him as your kind of highly respected high court judge. Yeah? But he was the guy who had everything. So with this in mind, Nicodemus' approach to Jesus is a very understandable one. He comes at night with a statement which we read in verse 2. He came to Jesus, John tells us, and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. 
for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. Do you kind of hear the tone in which he's asking this? He said, Rabbi, which was just a kind of polite term. It didn't mean anything particularly. Rabbi, you know, we understand you're doing this and we want to know sort of how you fit in. This is a man who's got his map of religious life beautifully kind of uh, set out, but he's heard Jesus is doing some slightly odd things and he wants to know where Jesus fits in. He wants to kind of check which box Jesus should tick in his religious world. Jesus' answer to him is stunning. In reply, look at me at verse 3. It says, in reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Do you know, actually, um, Jesus mentions the word born or born again five times in these few verses from verses 3 to 9. And I think that reference to born again, I think his message to Nicodemus is this. He says, you kind of think you've got life sorted. You think you have everything in place, he says. But you need to start again. You need to give up control and thinking you are in charge and become as helpless as a baby. He says, and then you'll find out what life is about. Then you'll see God. It's not about what you have yourself, he says. It's about what you'll receive. He says to Nicodemus, you need to realize you're no more in charge of seeing the secret of life than the wind that blows around you. (laughs) That is profoundly shocking for Nicodemus. He says in verse 9, how can this be? The idea that life is to be found somewhere beyond himself and his own social and religious network is profoundly unsettling. (laughs) And if we're honest, it's a message that's pretty unsettling for us. Because we're told that the life worth living is within our grasp. We can make it. We can do it. If we work, study, sweat, we'll get what we want. We'll get what life is all about. But Jesus says, no, we won't. We can achieve as much and have as much as Nicodemus had. But the life worth living won't come that way. It will come from a very different source. And deep down, I I suspect we may know that ourselves. Because if we take time to step off the hamster wheel for a moment and look at the picture that all the jigsaw pieces has made, you realise it's not quite the picture we were hoping for. Let me tell you about a a friend of mine who, who spoke to me recently. He said this, looking back on his life. He said... I kept thinking that the next goal achieved would make me happy. He said, when I was a student, the goal was getting a good job. And I got that, but it didn't make me fulfilled. So the next goal was getting married. And that was great, but I didn't feel complete. Then we got our own house, which was lovely, but that didn't fill the gap. And then we had our first child, and that kept us busy and was a huge joy, but there was still something missing. And he said, now there are no goals to be achieved, but I'm still not satisfied. That might sound quite a sad story, but actually it's a precious realization. I think the path to a life worth living starts when we realise we can't make it for ourselves out of our own resources. 
Perhaps some of you realize that this morning. I pray that some of the guests we're going to bring to life to the full this week are actually understanding that already. Because it's a a place of great possibility that life isn't something we just make for ourselves. That's not the life worth living. And Nicodemus was brought up short. But let's look at the second message that Nicodemus hears from Jesus. It's a much more positive one, and it's this. He says, life is something that God offers. Nicodemus, you see, is still kind of uncomprehending at this stage of the conversation. He's come to quiz Jesus. He's ended up as the one confused. All this talk of new birth, new life through water and the Spirit. You know, how is this going to happen? Now, Jesus kind of gently rebukes Nicodemus. He says, well, you're a man of the law. You should know the Old Testament. You should know what the prophets pointed towards. But then he makes it clear with a story and a statement. The story is from the Old Testament that Nicodemus would have known well. It came from the time when the people of God were journeying in the desert from Egypt through to the Promised Land. And they were struck down with venomous snakes, which they understood to be judgment for complaining against God's purposes. They they repented, and God told Moses to take a snake and put it on a pole and hold it up, and those who licked to that snake would live. And so Moses did that. He, He made a bronze snake, lifted it up on a pole, and those who looked to it were healed of their diseases. And it's this story that Jesus alludes to in verse 14. If you look with me, he says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus says, the Son of Man, that was, by the way, a very popular way in which Jesus referred to himself. It was a kind of way of distancing himself, but nevertheless identifying himself with the promises of God. He says the Son of Man must be lifted up, just like that snake was. What's he referring to? Well, he's referring to that time when he will be lifted up on a cross. And that the people who look to him, he says, will live. And that leads us straight into the most famous verse, perhaps, of the whole Bible, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Just one thing to notice about this verse. It's all about God and not about Nicodemus. It's all about God. It's God who loved the world. Not because the world was lovely, but because God is love. It is God who gave his son to die on the cross so that those who look to him would live. And it's God who gives and offers eternal life, not because we deserve a place with God, but because he longs for us to come back to him. Actually, it's that last phrase, eternal life, I just want us to think about for a moment. Uh, I don't know about you, it's a tricky thing to get our heads around, isn't it, eternal life? If we're honest, we probably slip into thinking it's something just referring to the way that life that goes on and on, and we sort of have pictures of harps and clouds and sitting around with people in beards. And, you know what I mean? And that, that's the kind of thing we perhaps think of in eternal life. But I suppose I want to say uh, it does refer to a life that goes on. But eternal life refers as much to quality as well as quantity. Does that make sense? Eternal life is about quality as well as quantity. In other words, it refers to the type of life we enjoy now, as well as the duration for which we enjoy it. 
Does that make sense? You see, what Jesus is offering Nicodemus is actually a new way of living, a new way of existing, a new way of breathing, if you like. Starting now, and then, yes, stretching beyond the grave. What does this eternal life look like? Well, like a a diamond, it has many facets that sparkle. But I want to highlight three that are hinted in our passage. Number one, eternal life is a forgiven life. That reference earlier on to the water, that's a clue. Water in the Old Testament is often about being washed and being made clean. The eternal life that Jesus offers is a forgiven life. A life where the stuff that we have done that we know has hurt others and we suspect has hurt God is actually washed away like it never happened. Eternal life is a forgiven life. Secondly, eternal life is an empowered life. That reference to the Spirit earlier on is the clue here. The Spirit is the breath of God given to every person who looks to Christ. And the Spirit here fills us with a purpose and a strength that lies beyond ourselves. And thirdly, eternal life is a loved life. Now, we all need to be loved. It's one of the most basic human needs. Well, through Christ, we know that we are loved by none other than the maker of the universe. Jonathan Vieira sang these wonderful words at the end of his concert last night. He said, my creator is also my savior. My maker is also my friend. From the one who made us is the one who loves us. An eternal life is a loved life. There is never a day when we need wake up when we are not loved by the one who made us. Eternal life is a forgiven life. It's an empowered life. It's a loved life. That is the life we're seeking to share in life to the full. That's what we're offering. It's an offer that God makes to every person through Jesus Christ. The offer of a life that's worth living that is not about our possessions that we have, our achievements we may have achieved, the status we may have acquired, or the aspirations we may still have. It's about the fact that we're forgiven, we're dwelt by God, and we're loved by God. But don't take my word for it. I want us to hear the story of somebody else who's kind of experienced that for themselves. Here's Matthew. Matthew's one of the team from Oxford who's helping us uh, with the uh, Life of the Full Mission. Matthew, it's great to see you. Thanks ever so much for coming and being with us this week. Matthew, tell us a little bit about yourself, your backgrounds, what you do, that sort of stuff, and what you did. Yeah, great. Uh, so I, uh, uh, I I grew up in uh, a family uh, living in North Yorkshire. Um, uh, went off to university to study law in, in Cambridge. Uh, as I was growing up, I had some Christian friends who I thought were a bit odd. Um, uh, they seemed to go to church, and I didn't really get why that was. Mm. Uh, headed off to university um, uh, and went to Cambridge. Uh, then uh, I trained as a lawyer, worked as a lawyer uh, for six years in, in the city, just down the train line into town from here. And, um, uh, and now I'm training to be a vicar. Mm. 
That sounds Oxford. like a little bit of a change. I that is a bit of a change. I imagine at some point uh, you became a Christian in the midst of this. I, I did. The Church of England says that's necessary. Um, uh, I was. Um, no, I've been sharing a little bit this morning about the way in which kind of life isn't something we just make for ourselves. Mm. Life isn't something we just acquire. Kind of. Can you give us some reflections on that and yeah. connect that with your story? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I, I guess that the, the friends I had who were uh, were Christians when I was growing up, they seemed to go to church. Uh, they seemed to find some value in it. I thought church was outdated, old-fashioned, and fundamentally, I thought church was something you had to do. You know, it was a duty. Uh, and when I turned up at university, uh, the first week uh, that I was there, I was invited along by some friends to an event put on by uh, the Christian Union Group meeting in college. Uh, and I was bowled over by what I discovered the Bible had to say about who Jesus was uh, and what it was uh, that he came to do when he came to this world. And, and the particular thing for me was understanding that this was a free gift. Mm. Uh, a relationship with God was not something that we earned, something we had to do, something we had to achieve. It, it was a free gift that was achieved by Christ uh, when he came into this world uh, to demonstrate, as we've heard already this morning, God's love for us and to go to the cross ultimately to buy us back mm. for God. Tell us, um, tell us how that played out. You're a, a lawyer with Slaughter and May? Yeah. That's right. So I'm imagining sort of that's quite an environment to be um, in, and you've got lots of people making different lives for themselves. Mm. What did, I've been talking about quality as well as quantity in terms of eternal life. Tell us what it felt like for you being, um, knowing eternal life and being a city lawyer. Yeah, I, I think for me it had two big impacts, uh, and I'd sum them up as security and freedom. Mm. So security, uh, and this was something that grew over time. I, I didn't see this immediately as I became a Christian. I knew who Jesus was, but his impact on my life grew over time. Security that I was uh, loved by God. Uh, uh, the Bible describes us as children of him. Mm. Uh, and security in that, which gives a freedom, a freedom from needing to prove ourselves mm. in the way that my colleagues at Slaughter and May seemed to think that they had to. It was a terribly competitive world. Everyone was concerned with what the latest pay rise was, how you were doing compared to your, uh, to your colleague, what the deals they were on as opposed to the deals you were on. Mm. And all of that's great. It's great to do our work well and to achieve good things in our work. But I had a sense of security that it didn't matter. Mm. Ultimately, I was safe. I was loved as a child of God. And that brings a freedom, uh, a freedom to hold those things lightly mm. and to make different world choice, life choices. Mm. Uh, so for me, that was to ultimately leave that world uh, and to, uh, and to go, we, we spent some time in Africa before I changed for vic- to be a vicar. And my colleagues found that very confusing. How I could step out of the rat race. I think you called it a hamster wheel earlier, mm. didn't you? Uh, that, uh, that they were on. But at the same time, um, if we'd stayed, I like to think uh, I'd have done my work well. I'd have honoured my uh, employers. But I'd have hold it lightly uh, and had a freedom in that. Mm. And I think since I've had children, I've got three young children now, I've understood in a deeper sense what it means to be loved as a child of God. Mm-hmm. You know, we all know if we've got children, how much we care for them, want the best for them, are concerned with every part of their life. Uh, and that's brought home for me, in a new way, the depth and richness of that image of being a child of our Heavenly Father, mm-hmm. uh, the mm-hmm. creator of the universe. Matthew, thank you. And, and we really appreciate that. And, and, and also, your being with us this week. Mm-hmm. Tell us... Um, uh, about what your hopes are for this week and, uh, uh, and what we can yeah, be praying into. 
Great, thank you. Um, I think my big hope for this week is that some people might have the opportunity that I had uh, when I went up to university. Uh, because of the boldness of some friends who i just made uh, to invite me along to an event, uh, I came to encounter the Lord Jesus for myself for the first time. And my hope for this week is that that might be the experience of some of your friends, uh, some of the residents here in, in Claygate, and they might come to understand who Jesus is and what it means uh, to follow him. Thank you ever so much, Matthew. really appreciate that. Do have a word with Matthew uh, at the end. Uh, And uh, you'll be seeing Matthew and the team uh, around during the week. They'll be wearing badges today. And uh, we really appreciate that. It's probably got us thinking, hasn't it, about our response. I just want to kind of drill into that for a moment because I want to pick up on what happened to Nicodemus. Is that okay? Um, Because you might be wondering what's happened to him. Because I don't know if you notice, through John chapter 3, it becomes less a dialogue or more a monologue. And kind of Nicodemus kind of disappears from view. Well, the answer is he doesn't disappear completely. Because actually John the Gospel writer gives us two little kind of insights into what happens later in Nicodemus' life. Uh, First of all is in, you don't have to turn to them, I'll just tell you what about them. I'll put the references for you to look up later. In chapter 7, he just um, records how Nicodemus speaks up for Jesus when there's a row among the Pharisees about what's going to be done with him. But then later on in chapter 19, after the death of Jesus, it is Nicodemus who, with Joseph of Arimathea, actually takes Jesus' body down from the cross and prepares it to be placed in the tomb. And I think that's all the evidence we need, actually, of the journey that Nicodemus has gone on. I'll tell you why. As a good Pharisee, Nicodemus would never have handled a dead body because it would have made him ritually unclean. So this is the sign that Nicodemus, and John is kind of putting it in neon lights, that, that Nicodemus has gone on a journey from identifying himself as a Pharisee to now someone who wants to be with Jesus Christ. He he realises, it seems to me, that life is not to be found in the position he used to have, but in being close to Jesus. And so he'll do anything for him. Actually, there's one final clue. It's this. It's Nicodemus' name. It's not what his name means, but the fact that we know his name at all that's really significant. I'll tell you why. Uh, Some recent research has shown that In the Bible, in the New Testament, when people are mentioned by name, it's for one of two reasons. Either because they were very well-known public figures like Pontius Pilate or Caiaphas, or because actually they were known by the early church when these Gospels were being written. And the fact that Nicodemus, like another example of that is Bartimaeus, blind Bartimaeus from Mark chapter 10. And the fact that Nicodemus is mentioned by name I'm sure means that he was known in the early church in the AD 50s and 60s as that Pharisee who became a follower of Jesus Christ. And that's the evidence that he was the one who was known even though by those early Christians as somebody who discovered life in Jesus. You see, Nicodemus didn't just hear the message of Jesus. He responded to it. He recognised that life was not something he could make for himself out of his own achievements and possessions. It was something ultimately that God offered to him through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. And Nicodemus took that with both hands. He began to look not to himself and his own achievements, but to Jesus Christ. He began, if you like, to believe in him, not simply believing that he existed, but believing that Jesus could give him a life that was worth living. And so I need to ask you this morning, 
Have you responded to that offer that Jesus Christ offers? Have you responded to it with both hands? That life worth living is not a life you'll ever be able to make for yourself. But it's a life you can receive. That eternal life, don't forget, is a forgiven life. It's an empowered life. And it's a loved life. You don't need to earn it. You don't need to work for it. But you do need to receive it. It may be that even today, you want to do that. You've heard Matthew's story. And you think, actually, I want to receive that life for myself and I want to stop looking at myself, and I want to look to Jesus Christ. But perhaps you have responded to that offer of life. Perhaps, like Nicodemus, you're already a follower of Jesus Christ. You delight to be close to him. I suppose I want to ask you two questions this morning. Will you come back afresh to that life that satisfies? Because I don't know about you, but there are so many voices out there, not just in magazines like Essential Asia, but all over the place, telling us that we'll only be satisfied if we get X or Y, or do X and Y, or go to X and Y. And I just find that constantly to come back afresh to Jesus Christ as the source for the life that satisfies. And say, you are the one who forgives, who empowers, who loves. Will you come back afresh to Jesus this morning and say, you are the one, Lord, who gives me a life worth living? And secondly, will you bring your friends this week and actually say, come and experience a life worth living, a life you don't have to work for, a life you don't have to earn, a life you don't have to compete with the person next to you, but a life you can receive? Will you come this week with a friend There are still tickets, whether it's to John Archer or David Wilkins, or especially next Saturday and Sunday, and say, come and experience a life, because it may be that somebody's relying on you. Just say, come with me, so they can hear a message of life. Because they won't hear it in Essential Isha. They won't hear it in the Daily Mail. They won't hear it in any new website. They'll hear it when we tell people of Jesus Christ. See, I don't know what your ideal lifestyle looks like. It's possible you'll help find some really helpful tips here. But I do know this. The life that Jesus offers is so much better. It may not be the ideal life you've designed for yourself. And I can't promise that it will be a trouble-free journey. But I think, as Nicodemus discovered... And as he handled Jesus' body that Good Friday, he knew for himself, it is the life for which we were made. It is the life that satisfies. And it is the life that lasts. Let me pray. Oh, loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example of Nicodemus, greatly loved of you. But it'll help us not simply to hear his story, but to learn from it. To receive for ourselves that offer of life. And to share that life freely with others. For Jesus' sake. Amen.